Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin again with verse 36 and read through the end of the chapter as we've been talking about marks of the New Testament church. Let me invite you to stand as we receive this word together and ask the Lord to apply it to our hearts. Beginning with verse 36, remember Peter is preaching this message. This is the first message that he preaches right after Pentecost. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and all for, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. For those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. Well, if you've been with us over these last few weeks, we've been looking at the marks of the New Testament church with the idea that, that those same characteristics that marked the church in the early days of the church should also be found in modern congregations if we are to be a Bible-believing, authentic church. We've seen how, over the last few weeks, that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. That means it was a learning church. They studied the scriptures because they knew that was the one thing they could count on to be true. They were devoted to fellowship. The church was more than an audience. They, were, they, they, they got together. They hung out. It was a family of believers who, who liked each other. They, they took the Lord's Supper regularly, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They knew that his sacrifice allowed them to have life with God. We saw that they were a praying church. They realized that their power was from God, not from themselves. We noted it was also a church of reverence. They realized that coming together, when they were together, it meant that they were experiencing the very presence of an almighty God. And as a result, it was a church of awe as God was moving in their midst and transforming lives. And therefore, it became a very exciting place to be. And part of that excitement meant that uh, people were willing to share what they had and they were generous. They were a giving church. They shared their possessions and there was therefore a tremendous sense of unity in that church. That's what we've covered over the last few weeks. Well, this morning, I want to just conclude this series by considering two final characteristics of the New Testament church that we see in this passage. And as we read this, I think we discover that the New Testament church was also a happy place 
and a growing place. Verse 46 reminds us that when they met together, they met together with glad and sincere hearts. There was a sincere gladness in the church. People were genuinely happy to be a part of it. Now, maybe you've been to a church like this, but you know that there are some churches that can be so serious and so formal that it comes across almost as oppressive in spirit. I know one preacher who says that he would never use humor in the pulpit. He thinks that the pulpit is such a sacred desk to tell a joke would demean it in some way. He, he, he believes that. Barbara Jordan was a congresswoman for many years. She once said, I cannot recall joy related to my church experience. I got messages about how to die, but never on how to live. The novelist Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote in his diary, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. It was as if that was unusual. He, he seemed surprised that he'd gone to church and he didn't walk away not depressed. It was just amazing to him. Last Sunday, uh, Mary and I were in Pennsylvania with uh, her parents and we visited a church in the Pennsylvania countryside. Now, it was a picturesque setting out in the middle of nowhere, hillside and a creek, and it was a beautiful place. But I was happy to find that when we walked into the church, it was alive. It was attended by young and old, and they were having a fellowship lunch after the service. And as you looked around, you could tell it was growing. The facilities were well taken care of. People were smiling and greeting each other. They looked genuinely happy to be there. There was a sweet spirit, no doubt about it. Now, what was fascinating to me, one of the things, was that during the greeting time, the pastor did something I'd never seen. He took a minute or two and played a game called Who's Waldo? It was a spinoff of the old Where's Waldo theme. He flashed a picture of someone in the congregation, and the first person to yell out the name of the person on the screen won a prize. Well, then they had the Waldo of the day, who happened to be an older lady. She stood up, and she kind of introduced herself. And, you know, you're looking at this, and it was silly, and it was pretty unsophisticated. But it was a small way to remind that church that everybody matters. And they were working hard getting to know one another. You see, I believe the church shouldn't depress us. It, it ought to energize us and, and make us feel like we're a part of a community. Now, sometimes instead of depressing, the church goes on the opposite extreme and they emphasize gladness to the point that they are never serious. The Bible here talks about glad and sincere hearts. In that kind of church, you'll never hear about repentance. There is never a tear shed for sin. There is never a serious effort toward commitment. There is so much emphasis on the light side that it's almost shallow and frivolous. It's all uh, self-help, uh, a few jokes, and people are assured, assured that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. But authentic churches will always have a balance, won't they? Between gladness and sincerity, the church met together. They had glad and sincere hearts. Think about Jesus. I think he held this balance 
perfectly. The Bible says he was a man who was acquainted with sorrow and grief. And yet in John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. Jesus wanted you to have joy. Now, I think Jesus knew how to laugh, don't you? Isn't it any wonder that children wanted to be around him? There was an attractiveness about him that people wanted to be near him. <clears throat> I used to have a book in my library by D. Elton Trueblood. He was a Quaker scholar of, of a few years ago. He wrote a book called The Humor of Christ. And in the book, he suggested that there are a number of sayings that Jesus would have, have when he was preaching or teaching, it would have evoked right out laughter from his audience. And he goes to show examples. He said when Jesus talked about a huge camel squeezing through the eye of a needle, people would have giggled at the picture. When he talked about a man trying to awkwardly take the speck out of someone's eye while having a log jutting out of his own eye, people would have laughed at the thought. Solomon said that a merry heart does good like medicine. Physicians will tell you that a good belly laugh is better an exercise for you than 10 minutes riding a bicycle. Someone said that if you laugh a lot, that when you get older, all the wrinkles will be in the right places. <laughs> I like what Marvin Phillips said. He said that after 40 years, your face is your fault. <laughs> and maybe there's truth to that. If you're a grim, sour person, by the time you get to 40, those lines are etched in your face. And sometimes you can look at a person and you can say, man, they've, they've had it rough, or they look like it. On the other hand, there ought to be joy in the life of a Christian. I like the bumper sticker that says, if you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, then notify your face. Makes sense. When the church comes together, there ought to be a joyous countenance that we exude. David, he knew sorrow, and yet he wrote, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. One of the things I appreciate about this church so much is that we don't take each other too seriously. We can laugh with each other. I remember several years ago now, I got on my high horse during one of my messages about cell phones going off during my preaching. Well, at just the moment I had made my point, I paused for dramatic effect, as good preachers will do. There was that moment of silence, and wouldn't you know, a cell phone rings. It was almost like I had planted it. The timing could not have been better or worse, depending on how you look at it. And I look over, and there's Dr. Chang answering his phone rather sheepishly. Well, all we could do was laugh. Well, it wasn't long after that, I made this big point, that our team, we had a, a mission team going to New Orleans to do some work, and on our way down, we stopped at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, on Sunday morning to worship. There we were in the middle of the worship, and wouldn't you know, a cell phone goes off. My cell phone goes <laughs> off. <clears throat> Who calls me on Sunday morning? 
Dave Millen, our elder, still never lets me live that down. Just so you know, and we don't talk about this, but the rule is if someone's cell phone goes off while I'm preaching, the person owes me a gift card. So now we encourage you to keep your cell phones on. And uh, I, 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 you know, when I hear one of those goofy cell phone uh, uh, ringtones go off in service, I think, ka-ching, red lobster, here I come. You know, that kind of a, that kind of a feeling. A few years ago, I was preaching, and you may remember I told the story about me shooting a squirrel with my BB gun. It was a good story, and I, of course, shared that Mary was pretty upset with me killing a poor, innocent squirrel. Well, the next week, some of our guys in our church show up wearing T-shirts that said, Squirrel Lives Matter. (laughs) And my wife still wears that shirt. I just want to tell you, if you're a visitor here and you don't like to have fun and you don't like to laugh, maybe you should keep looking for a church. But I want you to know, listen, listen to these verses in the book of Acts as it describes the early church. Acts 5.41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. I want you to think about that. The apostles had been beaten and threatened by the Sanhedrin, but they left rejoicing because they had been persecuted for the sake of Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 8, describes Samaria when the gospel was first preached in that city by Stephen. It says, so there was great joy in that city. Acts 11, 32 describes Barnabas when he went to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Acts 12.32 describes Rhoda, who was overjoyed when Peter was released from prison. Acts 16, verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, excuse me, He and his household. And that's just a sampling, just a sampling of what we see in the book of Acts. The church ought to be a place where we know how to laugh, where there's joy and smiling. We ought to be glad to be part of such a family. Now, there are two byproducts of a happy church. The first you'll see is praise. In uh, in verses 46 and 47, it says, They met together with glad and sincere hearts, and then notice the next phrase, praising God. They were praising God. Praise is not something you have to manipulate or manufacture. People will do that automatically. They want to sing. They want to smile. They want to praise God when they are joyful. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing praises. You see, there's a connection between being happy and praising God. It's just there. If you're happy and you know it, remember that song? Say amen. And so we would sing amen. We'd shout it out. We'd praise him. And we'd praise God together. That's, that's, That's what a happy church does. 
But the second byproduct of a happy church is it's popular. Notice that it says, and they enjoyed favor with all the people. Listen, you get a group of people who who come together and they believe the same thing and they enjoy being together, man, that's attractive. You can't keep people away. People will say, what's going on there? I want to check it out. I think about, you know, I'll be down in the family room and I might be on the computer or I'll be reading or checking out the TV show or something. Mary and the kids might be upstairs in the kitchen and sometimes they'll be laughing and talking and telling stories. Well, when I hear that commotion, what am I going to do? I put down whatever I'm doing and I go upstairs and I say, what's going on up here? What did I miss? Because I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to miss anything. We want in. I want to tell you something. The church ought to be known as a place of joy and sincerity so that people flock to see what's going on. Because the church is the only place where you can go where there is authentic authentic joy, a lot of laughter. Now, in the world, it's from the neck up. It's really making a... Uh, 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 masking a heavy heart or it has to be stimulated by a laugh track or induced by alcohol. But boy, the joy of a Christian is deep. It's deeper than that. Because our past is forgiven. Our present is empowered by the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, our future is assured. Of course we're joyful. Of course, we're people of joy. Listen, you come to church and there can be authentic joy. Not a a shallow happiness that pretends everything is okay. But it acknowledges joy that God is in control. That God is going to win the victory someday. When I was young, we... We sang a very simple chorus as kids, and, and yet I, I've had that song going through my mind, and I think it's still so true. Come and go with me to my father's house, to my father's house, to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house, where there's joy, joy, joy. Do any of you remember that chorus? About three of you. Great. Thank you. <laughs> You might have remembered it better if I sung it better, but anyway. But that leads me to my final characteristic. The church also ought to be a growing place. Look at verse 47. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Now, there are three things that you could take from that phrase. First, I want you to note that God added to the church. We sometimes talk about joining the church. Technically, we don't join anything. You accept Jesus as your Savior, you confess Him as your Lord, you're baptized into Him, but it is all the Lord's work. The Lord adds you to His church. He is the one who saves you. He is the one who sent Jesus Christ. He is the one who allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. The church is His gift to you, and when you receive that gift, you are joined to the church. 
But the second thing I want you to see is that the church is where people were being saved. Now, now think about that word. What are they saved from? Listen, the scripture makes it very clear that people without Jesus Christ are lost. Peter here in his message warns them to escape this generation. A person who does not know Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, who has not been born again by his spirit, there is no hope for eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You say, well, that's pretty exclusive. And I agree. And that's exactly what Jesus said. In Mark 16, verse 16, he said that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So that tells us, folks, that the primary task of the church is to bring people to Jesus Christ. Our mission is the same as that of Jesus. We are to seek out and save that which is lost. Our mission is to grow because we believe that found people are going to find people. And I want you to know the day we become too sophisticated to talk about salvation and sin and forgiveness and mercy and heaven and hell is the day we begin to die. People who don't know Christ are lost. Now, listen. Not everybody in the church wants the church to grow. Because let's face it, growth is inconvenient. It can be expensive. It means that there may be other people who have more influence than you do. Growth means change. For me as a pastor, one of the difficult things I have had to get used to over the years is, as we've experienced growth means that I don't get to connect with people in the same way that I did when we were a smaller congregation. I have to lean on others, others like staff members like Pastor Rich, who is doing a phenomenal job with pastoral care. That means he does primarily the hospital visits, and, and over time he's doing more of the funerals. Charles Swindoll said, The Lord never intended for the church to be a pyramid where there's one guy at the top meeting everybody's needs, but rather a circle where we minister to one another. But Jesus, he wants his church to grow. In Matthew 13, he said, The kingdom of God is like a, a tiny mustard seed, but planted in its field, it grows to be the largest of all plants, so large the birds come and build their nests in its branches. Luke 14, Jesus told the parable of the king who prepared an elaborate banquet, and when the invited guests were notified, they refused to come, and there were empty places at the table. And so the king said to his servants, go out to the highways and byways and find the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and compel them to come in that my house might be full. Jesus wanted his church to grow. He wanted his house to be full. Jesus wanted his house to be full. And friend, 
we should want what Jesus wanted. We should work to invite others. When people say to me, well, you know, Pastor, I, I don't know. I, I, I see that parking lot, and it's difficult. It gets so full, and I, I, I just don't want to be a part of a big church. I think about telling them to look up Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John there describes a vision of heaven, and he says, After this I looked out, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now think about that. There are going to be so many people in heaven that you cannot count them all. And I guarantee you, when you get there, you won't look out and say, you know, there are too many people here, Lord. Send me someplace else. (laughs) Don't do that. I hope instead you'll be saying, this is great. I can't wait to hear the stories of redemption. I can't wait to sing the chorus with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Have you ever been in a stadium with a raucous crowd and and you're cheering the team on? There's energy, there's life, and that's what heaven is going to be like. Lost people who were found are going to be praising him, and you'll be praising him too. Every Sunday morning ought to be a taste. Of heaven. Now I realize something. You look around and today especially it seems like people are so sophisticated. They don't want to be found. They, they don't even seem like they're lost at all. I mean after all they drive a nice car. They live in a nice home. They have their view on their politics. They read their books on self-improvement. And they look like from the outside they've got it all together. But they don't know Jesus any more than someone who's never heard his name in India. Do you remember what it was like when you were young and you used to play hide and seek? The object of the game, remember, was to was to hide so that you couldn't be found. But do you realize that that's never what really happened? Did you ever not get found? Of course not. Ginger. Ginger's trying to to, uh, ruin this illustration. I'm not going to let her. You don't hide and not get found. That's no fun. When someone is looking for you, it might be quiet for a little bit, but pretty soon you get bored and you make some noise. (laughs) Maybe it's a whisper, maybe you stick out a hand or a foot, or you might start to giggle. Listen, you've got friends who leave you the impression that they're not lost. They don't need to be found. But I guarantee you, if you look carefully, there is somewhere there a little cry for help saying, I need something more. It's a joy to be able to to sing that rest of the song, Come and Go With Me to My Father's House. The second stanza of that chorus says, Jesus is the way to my Father's house. To my father's house, to my father's house, 
Jesus is the way to my Father's house where there's joy, joy, joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that your house is open. Lord, we have been given a task for those of us who have received the gift of salvation, Lord. We are to invite others in. Lord, I pray right now that we would be excited about what you're doing in our church. We would echo the comments of David who said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I pray, Lord, if someone is here today and they have not received you as their Savior, they have not confessed their sins, they are not certain, Lord, of their destiny with you, that they would say yes to this gift of salvation you offer. And I pray, Lord, that you would add to our number those who are being saved, that we would be a happy, growing church praising you, inviting others, so that, Lord, you would get the glory because you are worthy. Lord, maybe this morning as we think about your church, I suspect that maybe some of us have been convicted that our attitudes have been less than joyful, that our attitude has been rather dour, that, Lord, uh, in some ways, we haven't rejoiced in this gift that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts. Help us to see the good. Lord, we're not a perfect church by any measure. We have much to learn and much to do. But, Lord, I thank you for this community. I thank you, Lord, that this is the place where you have chosen to show your glory. Lord, may many come to know you through this ministry. I pray this all in your holy name. Amen.